So let's pray and ask God for help. God, you are the only one. You are the only good God and the only sovereign God, the only God worthy of praise. And you are good and you help us. And I ask that this afternoon, you would be our help, that you would be my strength, that I would fade and that you would be magnified through the teaching. If there's anything that does not point to you, Lord, I ask that it would not be heard. And I ask that you would prepare all of our hearts to grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Today we wrap up our final Pillars series. And we've spent the last four weeks diving into the pillars of risen hope and the purpose of risen hope through the book of Acts. And now we're finishing up with the pillar of love where you live. Of the four pillars, this is the one that has a call to action directly in the title. We are called to meet the spiritual and the physical needs of those that are near us, those that God has placed around us. And this has been a unique topic topic to tackle in light of how Risen Hope will no longer exist after three more weeks. In the past, we've taken the time to squeeze out of scripture everything we can learn about how to biblically love where we live in this local area, how to physically and spiritually care for those around us in this community or in our neighborhoods or at our, our workplace. But we know soon that many of us are going to be dispersed um, from this place to varying degrees. So, and initially, this kind of felt like a contradiction to me. How can we focus on how we, as a church, are supposed to love where we live when our church won't exist anymore and we don't know where we'll be after that? But then, as I was studying Acts, I saw this, this beautiful truth just through the whole book of Acts. It's, it's where we have the first historical record of believers responding to and obeying the Great Commission. And we also have one of the most beautiful accounts of how the church actually grew, and at a miraculous rate as well. So I want to share this encouragement with you as we dive into this pillar. It's one that I've been holding close for the last months. The entity of Risen Hope is ending, yes, but God's church is not. Kingsgate may or may not remain some of y'all's specific mission field, but the charge of the Great Commission still stands for each and every one of us. And remember, at the end of the Great Commission, Jesus promises that he is with us always to the end of the age. Our God does not change. The foundation of this church and the greater church is the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, our Savior. That is our rock. And his promises do not waver. We see in scripture that the first examples of the growing church loving where they live happened parallel to believers being scattered to different regions. 
loving wherever they lived by giving what they had to everyone, sharing the gospel and obeying their Lord. These truths that we'll look at about loving where we live, they apply just as much as ever to every one of us, no matter where this next chapter of life will take us. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 10, we're going to read the majority of this passage. Um, it might be a bit lengthy to read, but every part of this story is valuable for how we love those around us. Acts chapter 10, and we'll start right at the beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. First, let's put this in context a bit. Cornelius and his company were not only Gentiles, but also Roman military. These were the people that, in general, the Jewish people knew on a daily basis as their oppressors. More than that, these are the people that so many Jewish people had hoped that the Messiah was coming to conquer for them. Cornelius himself was a man of good, good repute, even to Jews, but still, as we'll see in a minute, that doesn't change the attitude and the tradition of disassociation from the Gentiles. So Cornelius, a high-standing Roman officer, he has this vision, and then Peter has one as well, picking up in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a housetop about, six, about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to the heavens. To a Jew, the concept of something being uncommon or unclean um, versus clean and holy was almost unanimous with the difference from being a Jew and being a Gentile. God actually gave Israel many of the laws so that his people would be distinct from every other nation, and they took it seriously. Still, Peter wasn't quite clear of what God's meaning through this vision was, but God didn't leave him wondering for long. Let's keep going in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius 
having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why have you sent for me? And then Cornelius retells the vision and asks Peter to share what he has been commanded by the Lord. So we'll skip to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Peter goes on to share the gospel with all of them present, and we'll look at that later. So even though, even though these men were Gentiles and Romans, people that are considered unclean and not worthy of association by Jews, because it was God's command, Peter didn't hesitate to be around them in this story. The narrative doesn't give us the exact moment that Peter understands what God was teaching him. After the vision, it says he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. But after the Holy Spirit gives him instructions, he immediately is already living in response to the vision's meaning. Even before traveling to meet Cornelius, he immediately invited the men to stay with him as guests with no hesitation whatsoever. This is where our love for where we live begins. We can't love like we're intended to if we don't interact with others. More than that, the scriptures make it clear that there should be no partiality when it comes to our love for where we live. Don't forget that God repeated the instructions three times to Peter, further emphasizing the importance of this command. So I would challenge you to consider what partiality, parsi, partialities you may have in your heart. What characteristics and biases you may have that are similar to how the Jewish people viewed the Gentiles. It's easy to see and accept the context of their partialities and think, well, I'm not like that. I mean, after all, we aren't being oppressed. We don't have cultural laws that separate us or set us above people with different backgrounds. We're a nation of many ethnicities, and we ourselves at Risen Hope, we come from many different walks of life. A few weeks ago, JT challenged us to recognize what idols we had in our lives so that we could replace them with the centrality of Christ. 
And I think recognizing our idols is a quick way to find our biases as well. If you have an investment in politics, do you have a bias against those who hold an opposite view? Do you think less of those who have made different educational or medical decisions? When you witness a whole generation that has a drastically different appreciation for things like hard work ethic or common decency, does it cause you to hesitate to interact with them or even think yourself better? None of these qualities in a person is mentioned as an exception in Peter's vision or when the Holy Spirit commands him to accompany them without hesitation. So then we ought to pray that God would reveal to us and help us abandon whatever partialities we've cultivated in our hearts. Otherwise, we'll fall short in loving the very people that surround us where we live. Otherwise, we'll miss our opportunity to witness how God grows the church. Make no mistake, this account of history shows us a significant moment in the growth of the church. It's radical that a Gentile and a Roman a soldier at that would have such a fear of the Lord that God would bless him with this vision and let him be amongst the first Gentiles to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But God's use of Cornelius has an immediate multiplying effect on the church as well. Look at verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. And then in verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. From one man that God had directed Peter to share with, many were saved. This is always humbling and sobering, a humbling and sobering truth for me. If you're struggling to start an interaction with someone or extend hospitality, if your flesh or the enemy ever whisper those lies, like, it's so obvious that they believe, there's no way they'd listen to what I have to say, or my time would be better spent on someone who's more responsive or receptive. If you ever hear those lies, remember that God uses who he will. Even if it's not the first person people would pick in a lineup as worthy of that honor or capable of that role. We see this throughout scripture with accounts like Rahab, King David, pretty much all of the disciples and many others. God shows no partiality in who he will use and who he will save. Casting aside your biases and having the willingness to show love even to a single person could be the way that God chooses to multiply the church in a significant way for his glory. And there's another lie that we can hear. It goes something like this. Well, hospitality and evangelism aren't my gifts, so I'll just wait for someone else to show the person love in a better way. If you've ever had thoughts like this, and I know I have, I think it's the best moment to remember two things. First, that God is sufficient. Even if you aren't overflowing with a gift, we can still answer the call and meet the needs of those around us. God will be glorified. And second, that love where you live is a truth and a command for us as the church, not as individuals. We've spent a lot of time over the last year focusing on unity in the spirit and remembering and applying the teaching from scriptures like what we find in Romans 12, if you'll turn there with me. Romans 12, 1 
Romans 12, and we'll read verses 4 to 8. And it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let's, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, and to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. No single one of us is an expert or a master of every single one of these gifts, but when we are a functioning but when we are functioning as a whole body we see that god blesses the church with members that collectively can meet so many more needs or show love in a myriad of ways by the end of this account of acts by the end of this account in acts that we're reading through cornelius and many others are saved and baptized they are then part of the church and right at the beginning of the story, it's revealed what specific ways Cornelius is gifted, at least one of the functions God has blessed him with for the church. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to people, and prayed continually to God. This matches perfectly with the command in Romans to use the gifts we're given, the one who contributes in generosity. There can be a temptation to say that we don't have any gifts, or that there are still others in the body that are much more gifted in a way than we are. We've already stated that we should be compelled to meet needs regardless of our gifts, but God's word also gives us examples of his people loving where they live, even when what they do have to offer doesn't really seem to apply to the specific request or need. Let's flip back to Acts chapter 3. We'll start right at the beginning. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked them to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or, and gold, but, I, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. How profound is that? Even if we don't have what someone is asking for, we can still give what we do have. I want to point out two different sides of this. 
In this specific instance, someone was looking for financial aid. This is a very real world need that can be met. In fact, it's one of the biggest ways that Risen Hope specifically has been able to bless this community and show love and foster some amazing relationships. There will be times, just like for Peter and John, that we are individually not able to give someone what they're looking for. Whether it be money, encouragement, wisdom, service, or even acts of mercy. But the first thing to remember is that if we are a part of a healthy body of believers, then when these situations arise, by the grace of God, we shouldn't have to offer any regrets. When we're compelled to love our neighbors who might be in need of, let's say, financial aid, we should be able to think of the members of our church that have been blessed with the gift of contributing generously. That's why we have these different gifts. Knowing what other members' gifts are will allow us to show love by meeting specific needs when we wouldn't always be able to do it individually. By God's design, we function as one to meet the needs of where we live and show them God's love. In this account in Acts 3, Peter and John didn't go back to members of the church that might have been able to help the beggar financially. And I think for this instance, that's because God wanted to use this moment to verify the apostles' authority by a miraculous act. But the second thing to recognize is that what Peter and John do possess, what they do have to offer, ultimately is connected to something we all have to offer, our faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll explore that more in a moment, but we don't want to miss that, the, that one of the most regular ways that needs are met by the church is through the members that God has blessed with the corresponding gifts to meet those needs. We would be remiss to ignore the gifts that God has given us and those that he's given each member of the church and miss out on opportunities to physically and spiritually care for the place that we live in. I would implore you to take some time to dwell on scripture, looking at the gifts that God gives so that you can be aware of what has been given to you, prepared and practiced to use it. Romans 12, six through eight, which we just read, that's a great place to start, though there are many more gifts mentioned in scripture directly and through example. And knowing what your gift is isn't necessarily something you need to overthink. Sometimes it's as easy as reading the word what the word lists as gifts, gifts, and take note of which ones resonate with you. God has also given us each testimonies of his work in our lives and how he's used us. So take time to think of the moments in your own life where God has used you to glorify his name. Think of what gifts were utilized in those times. But my favorite way for us to learn our gifts is by the encouragement of one another. We've learned about being a family of faith last week and over the past year. And we, we've learned about how we ought to be living together, how we dwell with one another. And an unavoidable consequence of doing this is that we learn more about each other. We see each other in action. We see each other in our interactions with others. We see how our fellow church members respond to circumstances and the circumstances of others. So please, when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ furthering the kingdom with their gifts, let them know that you see it and let them know what it is that you see. Not only is this a profound encouragement, but it gives assurance of that gift and it lets us use them more boldly to love those around us. 
Peter and John didn't have alms to offer the man lame from birth, and like we said, they didn't mention another member of the church that could help in that way. So let's look at their answer again. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This man received physical healing, but what Peter gave him, what Peter and John had to offer, was much more than just their authority to physically heal. Peter showed this man love by healing him in the name of Jesus Christ. He offered him the opportunity to place his faith in Jesus. This is something we all have to offer. The one thing we all have in our possession that we can share about is the lordship of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, this man was healed physically for the teaching of those around him and to teach us through the record. But the story also makes clear that the man was healed by faith in Jesus. He was saved. Let's hear what Peter says, starting in Acts 3, 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. Peter makes clear that it was not their own power that healed the man. Then he directs them to the one who was responsible for it. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Offering faith in Jesus Christ is the ultimate way that we love where we live. Another way to say that is that sharing the gospel should be the foundational expression of our love. This is seen on almost every page of the book of Acts. Wherever the disciples go, paired with every action they take to show love, they're also sharing the gospel. Think about the ministry of Jesus, too. He met physical needs to point to more important spiritual needs that we all have. I was talking to Jeremy about this, and he shared with me that acts of love to meet physical needs by Christians are parables of the gospel that whenever we love someone sacrificially, we're emulating the greatest act of love, which came at the greatest sacrifice, the cross. And that this is why it's important to point to Christ in our acts of love, because physical and finite acts of love ultimately exist for that very reason. The gospel is why we're Christians. It's why we come to this church it's why we are new creations possessing an invincible joy. Even if we came up with every excuse to not love where we live because our other gifts might be inadequate, we all possess the gospel and we can all share it. And just like we should be aware and practiced in the other gifts that God has given us, 
we should be experts on how to clearly and efficiently share the gospel. I don't mean to say that everyone needs to go out and be an evangelist. The Bible's clear that evangelism is something that some are gifted with more than others. But just because you might not be an evangelist doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to clearly share with someone else the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus and repent from their sins. There's something called the four-point gospel. I wasn't taught this until my later adulthood, or early adulthood. I guess I'm not in later adulthood yet. (laughs) Um, But I'd like to teach it to you all this afternoon in the hopes that it would equip you to love to the best of your ability when when God presents you with opportunities with the lost and those just around us. The four points are God, man, Jesus, and response. And we're going to expand on these and base them on scripture. Return, <clears throat> excuse me. Returning to the story of Cornelius and Peter's visions, we left off where Peter had arrived in Caesarea and Cornelius had shared his vision with Peter and then requested that Peter share what God had given to him to share. And we'll start just before verse 34 in chapter 10. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Remember, Cornelius had begun to worship Peter, so Peter's emphasizing that Jesus is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to the ones who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. So right there, we see the last two points covered clearly, Jesus and response. We'll focus on these before we go back to the first two points, and I'll explain that in a moment. So point three is Jesus. Jesus is the turning point of the gospel. He is what gives us hope. For all those who are lost, for those who are wretched as we once were, for everyone who had no real hope in life and no possible method of achieving righteousness before God, Jesus came down to dwell with us as a man. He lived the perfect life before God and then he was killed He was punished as a criminal. Isaiah 53 puts it this way. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus is the answer to how we can be saved. And point four is the answer to how we are saved. Point four is our response. Jesus died so we could be saved. So what do we actually do when we hear this good news? We've already looked at two instances in Acts where Peter tells us. In the story of the man lame from birth, he tells everyone, and his, <clears throat> excuse me, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And we'll go through verse 19. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouths of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then when Peter shares to Cornelius and all of those with him, he says, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. We respond to the gospel by having faith in Jesus. We respond by believing in Jesus. We respond by repenting from our sins. Romans 10 sums it up like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Truly viewing Jesus as our Lord is how we are saved. This language is vital. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. It means master and owner. When we confess Jesus as our Lord, we're not just saying, Jesus, your Lord. We're actually forsaking any hope in our own strength and power. We're letting go of the false control that we have over our destiny. Then we're no longer slaves to sin, but we belong to him. He is our owner. And if you know anything about the goodness of Jesus, then you wouldn't hesitate to say that he is a master that I want to have. So why do we focus on the latter two points of the gospel first? Let me put it this way. Say you walk into a doctor's office and, and you're waiting in the exam room for, for the doctor to come in. And he comes in. He comes in walking with this five-inch long syringe with this glowing green substance in it. And he says, okay, roll up your sleeve. We'll get this in you and you're good to go. I don't think anyone with a sound mind would just allow him to do that. I think I would say, no, thank you, and then retreat to the other side of the room. But if the doctor comes in with your file and he walks over to you and shows you, we found out that you have a terminal illness and you'll actually be dead within the hour. Then your response is completely different. You would invite that cure with haste. Other factors like the pain involved or the size of the syringe, those would be minute at this point because you have an understanding of your condition. Because you have a clear view of the bad news, because you would have a clear view of the bad news, which makes the, sorry, yeah, because you'd have a clear view of the bad news, which makes the syringe, the cure, very, very good news. And the gospel is the same way. 
We can go out on the streets telling people that Jesus loves you and believe in Jesus, repent from your sins, all we want. But if they don't understand their condition, then they have little reason to even consider what we're saying, let's take it seriously. The first two points of the four-point gospel point this, give us the understanding of our condition. We don't see as many instances of these points being emphasized in the Bible, and that's because most of the biblical accounts take place in a Jewish or Jewish-adjacent cultures. These people were raised being taught the first two points. So let's go to a place where they aren't raised that way. Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> 17 verse 16, and I'll just kind of sum this up. It's when Paul is in Athens. And when we look at this story, it seems that Paul begins by preaching Christ and the resurrection, but he's received as a fool. They even call him a babbler, which means that he would have just been fabricating shallow ideas, um, sampling from others' ideas, and he didn't really have anything profound of his own to say. That's what they were assuming. The local culture there in Athens was of people who were proud of their sin, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers that are hearing him, they were people that were not raised to believe in one God or an involved God. Still, by the grace of God, they wanted to know what Paul was trying to teach. So they take him to the Areopagus, where people were literally just waiting around to hear new things. And this is when Paul makes an adjustment to include those first two points. We'll start reading Acts chapter 17 in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God... What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to mankind, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So 
So Paul goes back to the foundation and corrects their understanding of God. He tells them that he is a God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of everything. He doesn't live in temples made by man. He doesn't depend on man for anything. But conversely, everything depends on him. He created man and man's purpose, which is to seek and find God. And then Paul reveals their condition in light of who God is. He identifies that they have viewed God as they ought not to be viewed, as he ought not to be viewed. That God had overlooked that in the past, but now the command is given for people everywhere to repent. Now the standard of righteousness of Jesus is given. Now they know what the proper moral standard is to look at. And, then, and when they look to it, just like the rest of us, they know how impossibly doomed they are outside of the saving power of Jesus. To understand the good news of what Jesus did and how we can respond to it, there first has to be an understanding of who God is and what our sin means in light of that. So what is the greatest love we as believers have ever received? It's the gospel. It's when by someone's sharing or by our own discovery from the word, we heard the good news of hope and faith in Jesus Christ. This is the very same greatest love that we can share with the place, with any place we live in, along with the gifts that God has blessed us with. Going out to intentionally evangelize and share the gospel in the public place is a good thing, but our intentionality should, shouldn't end there. We should make efforts to cast off our partialities so that every person we interact with is viewed as the harvest, so that we don't hesitate to meet the physical and spiritual needs, which are inseparable if you're a believer. We should be prepared for the good work that God has set before us, knowledgeable and ready to use the unique gifts that God has given us as individual members of the body of the church. Most important of all, we should be ready to share the gospel clearly in any circumstance. My final challenge to you is to practice sharing the gospel. Role play it with each other, role play it with yourself. I used to go for runs a lot, um, that's revealing, but um, <laughs> when I was on a run, when I was not in the mood to listen to music, I would just imagine this perfect circumstance where someone walks up to me and asks, what is the gospel? And we know that God does that. He blesses us with opportunities. Think of Philip and the eunuch who just told him, I don't know what this means, tell me what it is. Um, but I, I want to be prepared to share this quickly and efficiently if that were to ever happen. I think that's a good foundation. And, and when I was practicing this, I would base my response on the four-point gospel. And it would sound something like this. And I, I'm doing this from memory. I didn't write it down just so you'd have the authentic side of it. But someone comes up and they say, what is the gospel? Start with God. The gospel is the good news that there is one true God of all the world who created everything, including man, and man rejected God. He turned away from God and wanted the power for himself, and he broke God's law and deserves a righteous, or a, yeah, a righteous punishment for that, 
which is an eternity in a place called hell. But God loves us, and he gave his son Jesus, who came down and lived a perfect life that we could never live, and then he was killed as a criminal to pay the price that we had to pay. And if we believe in Jesus, if we put our faith in Jesus and repent from our sins, we will be saved. Please pray with me. God, you are glorious. You are life. You give life. And we are the, you are the only reason that we breathe. This world is full of distractions, Lord. And it's, it's so frustrating how we can be distracted from the most glorious news that's ever been proclaimed. But I ask, especially in this season for us, for Risen Hope, that this would be a season where our sanctification would increase, where we would grow closer to you, that we would be overflowing with the gospel and ready to share it, ready to share our gifts and love where we live constantly. We can only do it by your Spirit's, Lord, your Spirit's power, Lord. And we ask that you would fill us in that way. And all the glory be to you. In Jesus' name, amen.